Welcome to another episode of Healthy Neighborhoods, Healthy Nation. We're your hosts, Melanie Sona and Aaron Leedka. And today we have the incredible Duran Chavis on the podcast. So for those of you who may not be aware of the incredible work that Duran is doing, um, he works to create synergy between corporate resp- social responsibility, public policy, and traditional grassroots activism that builds community capacity for transformation. Transforming communities is an act that must take place through the community itself by crafting collaborative approaches to collective impact, community work, and personal evolution to merge for sustainable systemic impact. From happily natural day to poverty mitigation to urban agriculture to racial equity, Chavis articulates the role of cultural that cultural identity plays in sustainable community wellness. He challenges organizations and institutions to think outside of silos and confront conversations of race and class courageously and authentically. Thank you so much for joining us today, Daron. We are so incredibly excited to have the opportunity to talk to you about the amazing work that you're doing. Uh, Thank you so much. I appreciate the invitation. I'm looking very much forward to the dialogue tonight. Yes. Um, So just to get us started off, Daron, I mean, from the bio that Aaron has read, clearly, like, I mean, you know, you're an activist, you're very involved in your community, very devoted to um, achieving equity and health and um, economic resource uh, access, things like that. But um, how would you describe uh, what you do? You know, just tell us, just start from the beginning, you know, what is it that you do? How did you end up on the path that you're currently on? You know, what really motivated your passions for um, the work you're doing in your community? Yeah, well... Uh, I am a community activist. Um, I'm also an urban farmer. Um, I've been involved in community change work for over 20 years. Uh, My story starts at the Black History Museum and Cultural Center where I was a volunteer in my early 20s. Uh, While there, I uh, uh, served as museum coordinator, well, first as a volunteer, then museum coordinator where I answered phones and uh, developed programs and gave tours about stories of uh, Black and Brown communities, especially in the city of Richmond. Um, that work evolved uh, around 2003. Um, I was able to uh, uh, propose uh, an event. The museum would usually host a jazz concert in its back parking lot as a fundraiser for the organization. And uh, in 2003, uh, funding was tight and they couldn't uh, pull it off. So I said, hey, you know, I have an idea for an event that we uh, want to do. Happily Natural Day was the event. It's uh, It was conceived as a space for celebration of the diversity of Blackness um, and resistance to these Eurocentric ideas of beauty. And that space uh, really uh, cracked open uh, my evolution as an activist and community. Um, it started out as just a gathering, you know, bringing uh, musicians, healers, artisans, scholars, uh, veteran activists together uh, to Richmond. Uh, to network and, 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 and barter, sell, and, you know, just enjoy each other's company as, as Black people. Um, but 
Um, that space also served as an opportunity for us to discourse about strategies to improve the conditions in our community. Uh, one of the types of uh, folks that showed up early were African-American farmers. They would bring their wares, uh, harvest value-added products, and I developed relationships with them that extended beyond just the event um, and kind of became mentors of mine. And uh, fast forward, we started working with them more intimately year round. Um, one of the challenges that the farmers expressed was, um, you know, food security is an issue. And if we're going to talk about health and wellness in black communities, we need to be talking about where food comes from. And for me, that was an epiphany, all right? It's like, oh, yeah, I mean, it seems obvious, but it's not necessarily, uh, it wasn't necessarily front and center. So we started uh, by aggregating produce from Black farmers uh, and selling that produce into formerly redlined neighborhoods, uh, redlining neighborhoods that have experienced uh, housing discrimination, um, in the 50s and 60s and etc., communities that have been impacted by you know the highway interstate highway creation, um, those those that work of bringing produce into black communities to sell uh, was very eye opening and uh, revealed to me that there was a lot of work that needed to be done in terms of transforming our communities, um, literally physically transforming our communities. Um, the, the built environment um, was, was, was an obvious space of, of, of need. Um, so, you know, uh, started working with them, selling produce, and then started feeling guilty that, you know, here were these older African-Americans that were bringing in hundreds of pounds of produce uh, for us to sell. And I started feeling like, yo, if something happens to these men, um, this program goes away. And I started feeling like, yo, I needed to be participatory in the production side. Um, started my first community garden in 2012. And that's when the heavens opened. And I found something that just was is uh, tintillating to my curiosity, but also um, impactful in terms of... Uh, just uh, physical, I could see, taste, touch, and um, and smell the change, you know, in, in real time. Um, so went from community gardens to urban farms uh, to policy work uh, to now training community members and helping them connect to access to land and increased land tenure. Um, so really the goal and the work now is how do we build Black-owned and controlled food systems and communities um, across our region um, and, and, and develop innovative strategies for the transformation of hyper-local communities, right? Like how does community take control of land yeah. and their proximity and, uh, and make those, that, those spaces assets uh, for that community, whether it be food or climate resiliency or just mm-hmm. their space, um, those those opportunities are vast, and so I have a lot of good, I have a lot of fun working with folks and helping them make their visions come to life. While you know, stewarding uh, happily, naturally, the organization we manage eight 
urban farms wow. and gardens in our region. That's amazing. Yeah, and we also have um, about 80 acres that we own um, wow. through a community land trust that we've started. Um, and farmers that are being trained and being connected to that land for production right. of food. So it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah, that's it is. absolutely incredible. <laughs> I get to play in the dirt every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it sounds oh, like a dream. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I I love that, Duran. I think the what stood out to me when we were first when I was first learning about your work and about all of the incredible things that you've done is the rooting in history. I think a lot of times, especially in public health, one of our first guests on the podcast was Dr. Lawrence Brown. Um mm. And he specifically talked about how any sort of sustainable community-involved change has to start with an understanding of where you're starting from and what happened before mm-hmm. you're trying to make this change. And yeah. I think the fact that you not like it's like you just through your experience, you're like, oh, this needs to change. Let me think about how I can do that. And then the sustainability mm-hmm. aspect of how can I get my community to be more empowered and have the resources to control their own food production? I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. it's such a, like, I think that especially now, like that's not something that I would think is possible for like myself was like, Oh, I can make my own food, which is why I also love the term urban farmer. I just, before encountering your work and, um, everything that you've been a part of, I had not, I didn't even know that that was a thing that could, I don't know, like yeah. urban farming. That's just not something that you hear of. And I think, I think a lot of people also, and you know, no matter who the audience is, whether it's people in the public health space or people who are not in the public health space at all, they often don't make the connection between food, not whether that's food quality or access to food and health and making resilient communities and um, sustainable communities. So can you kind of maybe elaborate on the role that, for example, urban uh, farms or community gardens, how does that really create this like ripple effect of change and sustainability and thriving Mm -hmm. communities that you've seen in the work that you're doing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we started uh, where we were, right? I am a city boy. I grew up in Richmond. I grew up in apartments in Richmond. I never had land, didn't have a grandmother that I spent the summer with shucking peas or any of that. And so uh, when I first cut my teeth on, you know, this idea of growing food and community, it was really like I'm learning as I go. Um, but what we learned quickly was that a lot of community activism is rooted in public policy shifts and advocacy to elected officials and things like that. And, you know, that's a contemporary reality, right? Um, but the idea of place, right, uh, is so critical to communities getting the muscle memory of working together, um, relationship building, and, 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 uh, and, and, winning, you know, finding something that can be celebrated as a win that we did this together. Right. Mm -hmm. And building off of that to, you know, ripple out into other areas of, of, of inequity is is so important. Um, That's one thing. Uh, Another is, uh, you know, why I call myself an urban farmer. I mean, it's only because I'm, I find myself in the city, right. Um, Farming is farming, no matter where you might find yourself. Uh, but, uh, 
we look at urban spaces as important to this ag conversation because so many uh, communities are urbanized. Uh, the Great Migration brought so many Black and Brown people into cities, and because of the racial terrorism that was experienced in rural communities, people, you know, got away from the land and lost land, and, and land was stolen. Um, I should say they were dispossessed of land. So in urban spaces, community gardens, school gardens, urban farms explicitly serve as a reintroduction to the land, to communities in a way that is palpable, right? This is small scale, of course. I mean, our farms in the city, I think our largest farm in the city is five acres, um, which Mm. is pretty big considering, but I mean, it's still relatively small when we talk about food production. But bringing Mm. people to those third spaces uh, to experience what it's like to to grow food together, because farming is a communal act, um, yeah. turns on light bulbs for folks, and it's it's healing entrenched in the land as well. And we get an opportunity to uh, showcase what mindfulness looks like mm-hmm. in community, right? You know, we also get an opportunity to talk about environmental justice and environmental stewardship, climate resiliency. What does it mean for these spaces to? address urban heat island effect or that lack of tree canopy in urban communities are often um, is often causing for communities to be hotter and that has a malady of a wide array of different issues that it brings about respiratory illness and etc um, it also serves as an opportunity to talk about stormwater management in cities you know all this all this concrete sidewalk you know um, asphalt, um, creates flooding in communities. Um, and so how do we build spaces that serve as green infrastructure or serve as sponges to keep water in place to help uh, keep our waterways healthy, right? Um, so those things, you know, the, 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 the work of urban ag and urban farming, community gardens and things like that is multifaceted. It has a myriad of benefits, but as an organizer, it has been this multiple bangs for one buck for us, right? Um, we can build a community garden with communities. We can invest in community members and their skills and their knowledge and help them understand the intersectionalities that are expressive in the places that we're able to create. Um, and it's also an opportunity for us to, you know, celebrate those victories like, yes, all this madness is going on around us. All these inequities right. are going on around us, but we were able to come together and do this thing, right? Yeah. So what else can we do, right? We were able to transform this space to disuse uh, an unused lot and make it into an oasis in our community. So sky's the limit of whatever else that mm-hmm. we put our, our minds to, you know, create strategies to, 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 to address. Yeah, that's that's just I mean, it's very beautiful to hear this like progression of, you know, where you started and how you've gotten into urban agriculture and then how you've been able to mobilize, um, you know, a lot of other black farmers, black community members um, in this mission to uplift and support one another and each other um, for liberation and um I don't know. I just have so many thoughts about it because I think it's like, I mean, just hearing you talk about how it started with, you know, the happy natural day and then has turned into now you guys are in control over 80 acres of land. That's a mm-hmm. lot of land. Um, I mean, and and I know there's ha- there's probably had to be a lot of, you know, 
policy involvement, a lot of, you know, learning in the process of how do you acquire such land? I mean, raising money to purchase it or whether that was through donations or partnering with people who are in possession of this land, um, making those negotiations. Like this is a very intensive and involved process, I can only imagine. Um, and it's just, again, your story is just so like, you know, what we cover on this podcast is like, well, the neighborhood is encompassing of so many different things, built environment, policy, social um, interaction, and all of the above. Um, and, and like what you've described, what you're doing has like incorporated all of those things. Like they're so necessary to be able to really achieve equity and health and wellness for um, this group of people, um, black people in particular. Um, I don't know if you could maybe just talk a little bit more about like, you know, like get into a little bit more about how you were able to navigate, you know, all of these, you know, I'm sure like it seemed like pretty insurmountable tasks at one time. Like, how do you even like think about acquiring land? And, you know, how do you make the case to do that? Um, I mean, I can only imagine. And But like you've done it and it's so empowering to hear that you've been able to do it with a group of people behind your back and yeah. you're going to continue to expand. That's like really inspiring. But I know maybe there's people out there who are like, you know, we really want to be about that being more sustainable in our local areas. Like how do you, how did you go about figuring all yeah, that out? Yeah, well, it was uh, flying the plane while you're building it. You know, um, every community is different. There's different players, um, different institutions and organizations, but the patterns are the same, Right. Um, for us in cities, of course, you know, affordable housing um, it, or housing period is a challenge, and um, land is at a premium because of because of it. Um, so it's not necessarily like people are w- looking around like, hey, man, we need to just turn all of these vacant lots into community gardens and urban farms. Is not the reality. Um, so there's some power dynamics that we had to figure out how to address early on in the work. And um, for me, it was uh, critical for me uh, to be like in those conversations um, early on in the work. We, we were um, fortunate enough to get into this work right when conversations about food deserts and and, and lack of access to healthy food was really becoming a rave. And so across the country, many um, municipalities and city governments were developing task force to address local food, you know, um, and urban agriculture, food security, things like that. Uh, so we got in the room. I mean, and we, we, we were doing work and uh, relevance to, you know, increase access. And we were doing the pop-up farmers markets with those farmers I spoke, to, spoke about earlier. So, you know, we kind of helped in, in, inform those processes by being in those spaces. So that's one, you know, if there's city government like talking about access to healthy food in your community, then positioning yourself inside of those spaces as a ex, as a community expert, as a person that is in fact imp- most impacted by those uh, by, by that potential policy shift. Um, we were there and we said, hey, you know, community gardens is important, you know, or, or land use policy is important. And so our city, you know, had developed a uh, a strategy for parks and rec. Our local parks and recreation has surplus property and the program uh, Richmond Grows Gardens was developed specifically for community members to permit vacant 
uh, city property and turn that vacant city property into community gardens. Awesome. So that's that's two, right? That yeah. there was there was a piece of policy that allowed for us to enter into that space and start, you know, a community garden. Uh, but when we started that community garden, quickly realized that this is not enough space. I mean, this is great. You know, we got six by four raised beds. You know, I think the McDonough Community Garden, which is our first garden, we started out with 10 beds. Now it's like 30 raised beds and like 20, wow. 30 fruit trees and things like that, pergola, shade structure space and things like that. Um, and it's one of the oldest community gardens in our city um, as a result. But once we started cutting our teeth on that, we said, hey, man, we need bigger parcels of land. And that learning process was very tumultuous. It was challenging, you know, working with um, private landowners and having the pressures of development uh, push us off of land happened repeatedly. And um, so we started working with community land trusts. Right. And the community land trust in our community focused specifically on affordable housing. But they understood that the work of uh, affordable housing is intersectional to healthy food as well. So they had written into their mission that they were interested in creating green space. So, you know, we parlayed in that space for a while Um in some ways successful, in some ways not. Again, the pressure of housing is for many of the forces of development is way more important than green space. And you see that, you know, matter no matter where you go, when developers develop the lat, the first thing to go from the budget is the green space, right? <laughs> it's like, um, yeah. it's a challenge. But anyway, long story short, um, because we had that experience, uh, when uh, the racial equity uprisings and, and George Floyd rebellions popped off in 2020, we were still banging, ringing this bell like, hey, you know, land is critical. Place yeah. is critical. Space is critical for communities of color to be able to address these inequities. Right. And um, it just so happened, man. I, and I, I have to say that it's being the being a squeaky wheel you get the grease, you know, we were, <laughs> we were able to uh, keep this conversation alive. And fortunately we're able to run into um, uh, someone um, uh, in, uh, in that particular case, a woman who lived in rural Virginia who wanted to give her land to black farmers. Uh, and that conversation catalyzed the 80 acre acquisition we worked with an organization called Agrarian Trust, which is dedicated to removing land from the speculative real estate market. So, as mm, you know, yeah, there's you know a lot of uh, private companies that purchase land and hold it right for future development, and so that this this idea of retaining farmland right is a big issue nationwide. Right? How do we ensure that we can grow food and that food can be grown in our communities. Well, you know, there's a lot of folks that are trying to figure out how to transition their land. They don't want it to be turned into a strip mall or, you know, uh, um, housing development. They want to keep it as a farm. So Ms. Walker 
express that sentiment and we were just so happening to be in relationship with an organization that was specializing in removing land from the real estate market to preserve it as farmland and retreat and transition it to black and brown communities hands and you know they provided that technical assistance and that legal expertise to help ensure that uh, Ms. Walker was able to uh, make that donation um, in a way that would uh, appeal to her tax needs, right? <laughs> and then also <laughs> uh, so that we can uh, do what we need to do, you know, as far as leasing and all that different type of stuff. The deed and title uh, being in our hands was, was critical, um, and 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 that and that that work for us also catalyzed other conversations. Right. How do we get that capital for development? Um, so I guess like the long and short of it is that we learned through just bumping our heads, man, starting smaller community gardens, working with faith based institutions, working with schools to build spaces. All those are great. But we quickly realized that in order for us to really do the work of community uh, food systems, we needed to have land that we had control of. The Richmond Grows Gardens Program, the municipal government allowing for us to take control of land through permit was great, but it was not as, how you say, uh, we didn't have as much agency as we mm-hmm. as we would desire, you know, on, on spaces like that. Uh, while many of our spaces, I think at this point, we have three gardens and farms that are on city property and those are amazing we're running up conversations with our local government about transferring those properties to our community land trust so that we can you know do the type of investment in those spaces that we deem is necessary for you know the maximizing of the potential in those spaces um but yeah it's just been one step at a time i mean a lot of heartbreak i will be honest you know in the early stages of the work, um, working with private landowners and having the pressure of development push us off. I mean, it happened multiple times and, and that is heartbreaking. And yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's like you have, it's like a, you're starting over multiple times, but in every start over, it's lessons learned, you know, it's like, okay, I know how to do this. I know how to do that. And so we just been applying those best practices to every additional space that we've acquired and that we've been evolving. Um, and most importantly is like building up community capacity, right? So that land acquisition work has been co-committed to our training, right? And teaching community members how to design um, and steward spaces simultaneously. And I, th- I like to think that because we did both of those things, we were doing both of those things at the same time, we were training community and we were also trying to acquire land. We've built somewhat of an ecosystem of folks that are committed to, you know, rooting in space and like taking care of those spaces, but also folks that have, you know, that see the other elements of it because everybody's not going to be a farmer. Some people are like, okay, yeah. well, I want to be, on the public policy side and others are like, I want to be on the education side and others are like, you know, I want to do value added products and others are like, well, you know, I'm going to work for the city. You know what I mean? That, that dynamic of people being positioned and having proximity to different institutions and uh, particular types of work that is, that's related to transforming the built environment. 
has been a priceless aspect of this. Like it's 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 not just me, you know. It's not just my organization. It's it's. It, it, I really stress that, you know, this work has allowed us to like develop uh, an interdependent ecosystem of individuals and organizations that are all committed to like the the the, the ultimate goal of communities being able to eat and have access to space to be. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely incredible. And I, I love the, the determination component of, I think that that's something that I find the most disheartening at times is there's so many no's. There's so many, like, it takes a while to get people on board with this stuff. It seems like, Mm -hmm. um, and, I, it actually this this is very reminiscent of I, I some I was reading some of the well I read a lot we re, we did a lot, we read a lot about of all the good stuff that you're doing but something that you had mentioned that really stood out to me is this idea of like food justice um, not and environmental justice not being able to actually um, kind of exist as long as particularly like black and brown communities need as long as they're not able in control of your own food supply, mm-hmm. food injustice cannot exist. And that was something yeah. that was so, it stood out a lot to me because it's very, we, um, there's so, so many connections to previous guests, but a previous guest we had on Majora Carter, she talks about like the nonprofit industrial complex and mm-hmm. this idea of, you know, people, you know, nonprofits do great work, but the reality is, is their existence and their need to continue to exist in these spaces. So mm-hmm. the need for organizations to continue to provide food to mm-hmm. lower income and disenfranchised black and brown communities inherently means that food justice is not being achieved. Yeah. And that that level of sustainability mm-hmm. is just so like after reading that, I was like, oh my gosh, I need to take a second and think about all of the levels that this is impacting. Um, and so, I mean, it's just, it's amazing to hear how you guys kind of achieve those things. And then this component of sustainability, this collaboration, um, training people, giving pe- people in communities, valuable skills that they can use. I mean, oh gosh, it just, just blows my mind um and something that i was also very very interested by you mentioned it a little bit um this like land acquisition i think in the media or out there for people to you know read as much of or as little of as they want there's a lot of talk about like reparations and what reparations would look like um whether they should happen or not i mean i think it's a pretty controversial topic in general um, can you kind of explain, but you, I think you have a very practical and um, a take I hadn't specifically heard before. Can you kind of explain your concept of like reparations through land donation and utilization and kind of how that connects back to achieving the food justice? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the reality is, is uh, uh, folks aspire to farm. Folks aspire to have green space in their communities. And as long as those communities don't have control of space, of land in their communities, they're always going to be beholden to someone else's um, whim, right? And so the foundation of this stuff is like, okay, 
the 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 original sin of this country has is dispossession of yeah. indigenous people of land, right? Black people were never meant to own land in this in this in this country. So, you know, we try to like, okay, if we're gonna really undo these inequities, then we had to get to the root of what occurred. I mean, I'm in Virginia. And so yeah. Obviously, Virginia is, you know, kind of ground zero for, for, for this stuff as far as settler colonialism and, you know, this idea of colonization and manifest destiny and, you know, that white or people, the hierarchy of human value, like people of European ancestry being mandated by God, right, to control the land of other people that pe- other people have already been occupying, right? Um, so we're like, okay, well, if we're going to really talk about justice and what does justice mean, we need communities to have control and be self-determining on land in their own communities, right? And so land-based donation plays an integral role for that because it's not as if we've been sitting on bundles of bags of money, you know what I mean, to yeah, right. purchase land, right? Yeah. Um, and so this is where the whole conversation about allyship and um, folks being in synergy with movements, global movements. This is not just Virginia. It's not just the United States. Like all across the globe, people are reconciling that the land, the space that our feet stand on is in someone else's control. And what does it mean to flip that back to the folks that, have been disenfranchised that have been marginalized. Um, I'm very happy to say that, you know, we're still figuring this stuff out. I ain't got all the answers, but I do understand that, you know, one way um, that this works is that there's a, there's a lot of power in a community that did not have control of land being able to say that, yes, now deed and title, we can develop, this parcel into housing, into farmland, into park space. We can turn it into a wellness center. Like whatever we envision to happen, we can make that happen as a community. Um, that, that That is a radical imagining, right? We talk about the radical imagining, like being able to dream and, and, and then not only being able to dream, but like actualize that dream, like, what does that look like and what does that do to the self-efficacy and esteem of communities that have been told no, uh-uh, right. no, no way. You know what I'm saying for generations being, you know, given these parameters that you operate in, it's, um, it's a new day. So uh, land, we understand it as, is a tool for wealth building as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, I didn't know this until I started working with land. There's a whole strategy around protecting land um, that does have a monetary value. You know, conservation easements um, is something that I learned quickly were multi uh, six figure, multi-million dollar industries, right? Across the country, you know, there are organizations that specialize in, uh, buying land, protecting it, and then selling it, you know what I mean? So that in, in, in it's protected state um, to, 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 to farmers and things like that. Um, but we did our first conservation easement on five, on four of the five acres that we were able to acquire in 2022. 
And, you know, it, it resulted in, you know, six figures for our, wow. our work uh, as an organization. So it's like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, this is a strategy for us to be not only in control of land, but also have uh, the capital right. that's necessary for development of that land and turning it into what we need to turn it into um, or to acquire more uh, land right. for us to be able to do the things that we see um, fit. So these, uh, you know, these this idea of land-based reparations is critical. It's a it's a huge. It's it, I don't see any other way of us really being able to cut through the fog of what does it mean for repair to occur right. in communities if we're not talking about who's in the driver's seat, who's making mm-hmm. the decisions about the places that marginalized communities live. I farm, but I'm also a member of uh, a board of a community land trust that does affordable housing. What does it mean for us to have control of land? It means that now we can develop housing, affordable housing, yeah, yeah, right? right, on land and communities that people are being evicted from in mass. Right. These numbers are ridiculous. I'm sure wherever anybody's listening to now, if you look at the neighborhoods that were formerly redlined in your community, I'm sure the eviction rates in those communities are through the roof, you know what I mean? And so when you are able to acquire land in those communities and then turn parcels into affordable housing in those communities and create green space that serves serves the purpose of climate resiliency and or food justice for those communities, it's like we're built, now we're building holistic communities. Now we're mm-hmm. building economic, now we're creating economic development opportunities in those communities as well. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a real big proponent of food is the common thread that runs through everything. So we're able to create robust food systems, whether it's processing, production, aggregation, distribution, waste management. In each one of those spheres, there's opportunities for people to get paid and opportunities for people to have entrepreneurial opportunity. But it all starts with who controls the land. Because if I own the mm-hmm. land and yeah. I build a a, a, a a farm, or if I own the land and I build, you know, uh, affordable commercial, then I'm granting opportunity for those communities to, you know, become self determining and start building solidarity economies and circular economies and things of that that nature. But without control of the land. I'm yeah. beholden to development. I'm beholden to right. external forces from our community, from our external community, external forces to our community, and so yeah, the, the land piece is critical. I, and I'm 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 also inspired by the bevy of organizations and institutions that are engaging in that work. Right, mm-hmm. um, like I said, the Agrarian Trust is one organization, but there are dozens of others that are now taking, you know, a real deliberate and intentional approach to ensuring that land is being redistributed back to black and brown um, and and queer uh, organizations and individuals that aspire to farm or aspire to do community development. And that's, I think that's, I feel like that's the way, that's what we, that's that's what we need to be. Um, I'll just use an example. The Catholic church, there's a ton of towns, mm-hmm. <laughs> entire towns that nuns purchased, you know, generations ago, right? Yeah. 
all across the country. And now, you know, apparently being a nun isn't, you know, as popular as it once was, right? <laughs> so <laughs> so the question is, how do, what, what do these nuns do with these towns? Yeah. And there's mm-hmm. a whole movement, the Nuns uh, nuns and Knowns Project, where these uh, former nuns or these current nuns and these former towns are identifying indigenous and black owned black organizations mm. to transfer the land back to. That's awesome. Good that's, for them. I mean, that's, if that don't give me hope, I mean, I know yeah. it's, it's <laughs> like, wow, the, the Catholic church can make that type of move. Yeah. <laughs> what does it mean for all of the, you know, millions of acres across the country? Right. And, and no, it's, it's just, a, and it's a start. I mean, what we're doing, I feel like we struck lightning. We just happen to be, in right relationship based off of us ringing the bell and and identifying someone someone finding us actually it wasn't like we were out there searching for someone uh miss walker found us um so you know we were just deliberate about okay we're gonna let's walk together let's see what this Mm -hmm. looks like and 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 now you know um we've come up with some landscape plans and you know we're exploring what our conservation easement stuff is going to look like um, like I said, we got an easement on one of uh, the properties that we have access to. And so we're looking forward to the next and just going to continue growing. And I like to talk about this to people like that. This is real. This is not, you know, yeah. a theory. This is like, you know, in real time. Yes, you can do this, too. This is not mm-hmm. um, far fetched. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so far, our conversation has just been really like inspiring like I feel excited listening to you talk about all of these things because like you just said like this is real like this is an action you know this isn't some like highly theoretical proposal like you know if we're able to do this then we can stimulate the economy we can do like it's happening right now down in Richmond Virginia and in other places around the country I imagine um so I am really glad that you're able to come on this platform and um you know give another voice to what it is that you're doing. Hopefully other people out there who can come across this would be inspired to collaborate or do likewise in their communities. Um, Because I can really see how this is, you know, contributing to the esteem of a community, which is so critical in, you know, all of the downstream effects of generating economy and generating, um, you know, generational wealth and things of that nature um it really starts with like how a community perceives themselves and there's nothing mm. more critical than giving people agency and allowing them to know that they have that over their future and mm-hmm. i didn't even think about land being a factor in that and mm. i feel like many people would not so this is just it's been so fascinating to hear how like what you're saying like reclaiming the land is like the fundamental like this is a starting place that i think a lot of people need to get their heads wrapped around and maybe start getting on that bandwagon so i you're in the future and we're with it i love this i really really do this is so amazing um duran i wish we had more time to talk to you really this is so fascinating um but you know our time is coming to an end here uh and uh, we have one more question we want to ask you before we do close out um 
you know, this is like, again, this has just been such like a stimulating conversation to hear what you're doing in real time, not theorizing about, but doing. Um, so I hope other people who are listening can, can you know, get on to this. And um, Aaron and I are definitely interested in looking into like ways we can help in volunteering or whatever it might be. So you'll have to give us resources of on course. that that we can look into um, and for anybody who may be interested in the area. Um, so our final question for you, Duran. Um, because our podcast is one that's about understanding the impact of our environment, our built environment, neighborhoods, more broadly speaking, have on us. Um, we like to ask every guest, you know, what was your neighborhood like growing up and how has it contributed to where you are today? Oh, boy. Um, how's my neighborhood? I, like I said, I grew up in apartments. Well, all right. So back before when I was young, my mother um, married my stepfather, who was a military man army and we lived in germany uh hanau germany um, from age uh four to age 12 and um i like to think and uh that my experience living overseas um in a space like germany that play that 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 plays places so much emphasis on forests um, space like uh, it's, it's a part of the culture of um uh of, of you know you go to a place like berlin and it's like protected forest in the middle of the city right um every uh year when i was in elementary school we would go on a volks march would be a walk a hike through the forest you know wow. and I, my mother Jeez. kept those little medals that we would get every year um from doing that um and i have you know memories of spending time in the woods and, you know, exploring and things like that as a, as a, as a, um, as a preteen. And I think that that, you know, really kind of laid a love for the outdoors for me um, as a youth. When I came into my teenage years and we came back to the States, I mean, it's all asphalt, um, concrete neighborhoods, you know, apartments, you know, not a lot of space. I don't have a backyard, you know what I mean? I have a stoop <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, we, we travel, we walk around the neighborhood and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, from age probably 13 to my twenties, I had no relationship with like, I mean, outdoor space in the sense of like, this is a uh, space that I can iterate upon. This is more like I visit the park and maybe walk around. I had a huge um, love of like the botanical garden I uh, even worked at one for a while, you know, and that space definitely is near and dear to my heart. Um, but I think, you know, learning, well, learning how to grow food in small spaces for me, like now it's like, I try to, I try to help people understand, like, just because you got an apartment, you know, just because you live in a, a neighborhood that doesn't have space that there are things that you can do, you know, and um, don't be uh, stifled by the fact that, you know, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm in this cramped neighborhood or what have you. There's there's vacant lots that are in proximity to you. I'm positive, especially if you live in a neighborhood that's traditionally, you know, marginalized or low income. And, you know, you can get access to that space. I mean, I'm not a big, I, well, I'll say this. I know there are a lot of people that are advocates for like guerrilla gardening and I, I, I give much kudos to people that are like, yo, I'm going to just do a thing. Um, 
but I'm also very much aware that there are some challenges of urban soils. So I'm not a big proponent yeah. for people to like just go plant some stuff on a vacant lot. Like, yeah, go do that thing, but also be safe. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and more importantly, I've also experienced like that displacement and what that does. So I'm like, yo, you know, work with your city, like talk to the people in your parks and rec, talk to the people at their community center, the local parks and rec community center. Like they might have some space that you can develop a a garden space. So I feel like my experience of like growing up in apartments put me in a position where I was like, yo, I, I'm going to get access to some land. Yeah. I'm going to figure this out. Mm-hmm. Like, it's no, like, yeah, I hear, I hear the no. I hear, I, I look around, I don't see it, but I'm going to mm-hmm. find it. And yeah. we're going to figure it out because, you know, it's like, it's necessary. You know what I mean? It's it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's obvious that this, especially being in a neighborhood where stuff was, I watched it not be used. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, if you're mm-hmm. from a neighborhood that has been marginalized, you know a lot that has never had anything yes. on it. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? And you've seen it year after year uh, being disused. So, you know, figuring out how to access that space and, and, and to put your community's imprint upon it is, you know, that's the work. Start where you at. Yeah. Figure mm-hmm. it out. It's, it's not, it's, it's, it does, I don't want to sound ableist, but I will say that you have, it's, it's mandatory for us to figure out the strategies of how to take control of space in our community and to craft those and shape those spaces into the reflection of what we need in our communities. And it looks different for everybody, depending on who you are and where you are, but there are ways for it. And if you, the moment that you say, no, you can't, then, you know, you've capitulated to, you know, what the system wants you to do. The system wants you to feel like there's no way forward. So figuring out those strategies is critical and just thinking it through, you know, that's what I, yeah. that's how the, that's how my experience growing up in, 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 uh, impacts my work today. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I lived in, I lived in a space where we were in the forest walking for miles every year. And then I mm-hmm. came into a, a set of apartments in my teenage years and it's like, yo, this is not enough. And as I got older, I was like, yo, we're going to figure out a way to have an experience in this community that's healthy. Like, we're going to do it. And and right. I don't know. I don't know what no means. Like, <laughs> it's like, okay. Uh, no, it's a good trait like, to not have. Here, not, not now. Like, you know, why? Why? <laughs> Let's figure that's it amazing. out. Let's compromise. That's so amazing. Um Again, I thank you so much for coming on here and just sharing your visionary perspectives and mindset with us. I think this has been nothing short of inspirational. And I can say with certainty, I'm sure all of our listeners can agree with that. So um, again, just thank you so much for coming on. This has been great. Thank you. you. I appreciate y'all. This is a great, uh, great conversation. Thank you all so much for holding space for this conversation. Yeah, so necessary. But um, we also want to thank all of you listeners for joining us for another episode of Healthy Neighborhoods, Healthy Nation podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we would really appreciate it if you would give our podcast a five-star review and go follow us on Instagram at HNHN underscore podcast. And we would really enjoy it if you would join us next time to explore how healthy neighborhoods are the foundation to a healthy nation. Thank you.